0: Please remain standing and pray with me. Holy Spirit, come now, and in your mighty power, anoint the teaching and preaching of your word so that we would begin, Lord, to to glimpse what a great salvation we have through Jesus Christ. Lord, open the mystery of our salvation to us, and may our response be that of praise and thanksgiving. And we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. You may be seated. I'm just going to check my Facebook a little bit here. <laughs> no, you know I don't do that. I'm Doing something for our um, for our catechesis, which is limiting my time. So, well, as we uh, come to this passage out of Hebrews chapter two this morning, Hebrews two, verses one through eleven, uh, we, we hear that phrase. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So great a salvation. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. And so brothers and sisters, we are swimming in the deep end of the biblical pool today. So get out your swimmies, put on your personal flotation device, and get ready. Here is the mystery of our great salvation unfolded in Hebrews. And by the way, what do, what do we mean? What does what does mystery, that word mystery mean in that sense? Well, it means something that we cannot know through human reason, but that which is hidden in the infinite wisdom of God and can only be known to us because God chooses to reveal it. That's what a mystery is. So here's What this kind of mystery should do to us and when we encounter it, when this this mystery that is not available to human intellect, to human reason on its own, left unaided by grace and God's specific revelation, what should happen to us when we encounter such a mystery as this? It should elicit from us wonder and praise. When we ponder the mysteries of God, it should elicit from us wonder and praise. When we encounter God's mysteries, our response is, listen, doxology. So as St. Paul reflects on the mystery of God's work of salvation in his letter to the Romans, he finally breaks down, overwhelmed by the glory of it, and cries out, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Paul tried to unscrew the inscrutable, but it didn't work. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's Paul's response to the mystery of salvation. So, part of the mystery that we encounter here unfolded in Hebrews chapter 2 is that God, in His infinite sovereign wisdom, a wisdom that confounds human wisdom, God delights in using and bringing together, this is a critical point, God delights in using and bringing together what appear to be opposites, opposites, in order to affect our salvation. This is something that has been clear to Christians from the earliest times. St. Gregory of Nyssa, writing 15, 1,600 years ago, says this, This manifold form of wisdom, resulting from the plating together, plating together, like braiding together of opposites, is now clearly taught through the church. Here are the opposites that, that Gregory of Nyssa sees in the gospel. The word becomes flesh. Life is mixed with death. By His own bruises, Christ heals our wounds. His bruises heal our wounds. By the weakness of the cross, He overthrows the adversary's power. Weakness overthrows power. He is in death and, and life does not depart from Him. He is mixed with slavery and remains in kingship. So this blending, this bringing together of opposites, uh, is. I, I think that part of the character of God is revealed in this. God's character, I think there's, I see mirth in this. I see playfulness in this. I almost see a smile on God's face as He brings together things that our minds cannot hold in tension. He brings together opposites in a way that confounds human wisdom and reveals the the wonder and wisdom and mirth of the God we love and serve in Jesus Christ. So there are two great opposites. There are two great opposites at work in this passage from Hebrews. And the first one is this. The uncreated, eternal Son of God truly and fully takes on our human nature. What's the opposite? What's the mysterious opposites brought together? Uncreated God clothes Himself with creation. Uncreated God clothes Himself with creation. At the beginning of this letter, which is really more in the form of a sermon, the writer of Hebrews reveals that God's ultimate self-expression, His ultimate self-revelation, is through His Son, is through His Son. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down on the right hand of majesty on high. And so we get that, that clear indication in this that the Son is no mere creature. He is, he is God himself. So in this, the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand that the Son of God is eternally begotten. You're going to hear that phrase again. Eternally begotten, not made, and is thus eternal uncreated God Himself. I told you this is the deep end of the pool. To make sure we understand this, He writes in Hebrews 1.8, actually quoting from the Psalms, but of the Son He says, listen, but of the Son He says, Your throne, O God, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Your kingdom. But, says the Scripture, God the Son, this uncreated God the Son, was made lower than the angels, Hebrews 2, verse 9. And then in Hebrews 2, 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and, and blood, He Himself, uncreated God, partook of the same things. And in taking on our humanity... Hebrews 2.17 says, he was made like his brothers in every respect. So that's the first of the opposites that are brought together. This is going someplace. Now the second great coincidence of opposites, that's what Gregory of Nyssa calls these coincidences of opposites, is this. The uncreated and eternal God, now made flesh, is himself the source of life, and from him all life proceeds. So that's the first thing we need to remember. But life itself, here are the opposites, life itself suffers death. Life suffers death. Remember that in John's gospel it says of Jesus in John 1 verse four, "In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And again, Jesus himself says of himself in John 14:6. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except except through me. I am the life. Here is the mystery. Life itself suffers death. So Hebrews 2, 9 through 10 So that is, that's the groundwork. That's the foundation. Those are the opposites brought together in this passage. So what does God accomplish? What is He accomplish, accomplishing in bringing these things together? Well, first of all, He... Ga- I mean, this sounds so Reformed. He gains glory for Himself. Oh, my little... That, I, I may have been infected a little by, by that, uh, that Calvin stuff. It might have got in. It seeped in somewhere... Not, not all, I'm not, over, I'm not overtaken by it, but I do like some of that stuff. He gains glory for himself. Jesus himself is crowned with glory because God has become man and life has suffered death. Jesus gains for himself glory because God has become man and life has suffered death. He, it says in Hebrews 2.10, we just heard it read, is crowned with glory and honor. He is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. It is precisely because Jesus embraced humiliation that he receives glory and honor. You might say that's another opposite. Because Jesus embraces humiliation, he receives glory and honor. You know, that same thought, it's not just here in Hebrews, it's found clearly in Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, he became so Jesus t- takes on the form of a servant, takes on human form, humbles himself to the point of death, death on a cross. And because of that, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So Christ's victory, he gains glory for himself. Christ's victory is greater because he wins it. Please listen. He wins this great victory when he is at his lowest. When the high, uh, it sounds like another opposite, doesn't it? When the highest, the God above all gods, King above all kings, Lord above all lords, is at his lowest, when he is humiliated on a cross, that's when he wins the victory and defeats our foes, sin and death and the devil. And you know, there's something in us we are hardwired to understand and delight in hearing the story of the hero who at the very lowest moment somehow overturns all the odds and vanquishes the great enemy. There's something in us that loves that story, isn't there? Now, you know, we, uh, one of our sacred texts here is the Lord of the Rings. No, no it's not really, but it is so good. And... Tolkien is writing, really, this, this uh, invented mythology of his as a Christian. He writes with a Christian worldview, intentionally thinking these things. So I won't belabor this, but if you're familiar with the books or if you're familiar maybe even with the movies, you know that it is when Frodo is at his lowest, when he literally has come to, he's come to the end of his quest, and in that moment, instead of having the strength to win the victory, to destroy the ring of power, when he is at his most defeated, it looks like, the victory is won. We love that kind of story because when God was at his lowest, he won the great victory, and because of that, he gains all the more glory for himself. But wait, there's more. So that's what God has accomplished for himself in the bringing together of these opposites. What... Christ, though, what Christ has accomplished for you and for me through the bringing together of opposites is so amazing that it sounds like presumption verging on blasphemy. What And it's right here spelled out in Hebrews. What He has gained for us sounds like almost sacrilegious presumption if we were to just talk about it without having the warrant of Scripture to back it up. So first in becoming one of us and sharing our humanity. Jesus, this is what he accomplishes. He enables those who have received him to share in his sonship. Because he's become one of us, or as Athanasius said, God became man so that man might become God. Again, it sounds like sacrilege. It's so astonishing. Jesus brings many sons to glory, many sons to glory. He takes, He makes us, He makes you by grace what He is by nature. He makes us all sons of God, men and women alike. We partake of His intimate relationship with God and we share in the the Son's glory. The glory Jesus has as God's Son has now been conferred upon you and I as we are united to Christ. He brings many sons to glory. Jesus is our God, but wonder of wonders, the Bible says here that He is not ashamed to call us brothers. Oh, doxology is the only thing you can do with that. Praise God. Oh, how he has lifted up and glorified his fallen, wounded human creature. He is not ashamed to call you a brother or sister. He makes you, he raises us up. And somehow in the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of our, the, this great salvation, we are brought in by grace into the very life of the Holy Trinity. And as it says in 2 Peter, we become partakers of the divine nature. Oh, we just should spend all day thinking about that. Did you not realize that's what God has done in your life? And all of the great creeds and catechisms of the church Express that same thought. It's biblical, but it's shocking. Shocking, and how wonderful it is. What else does God do by bringing together these opposites? Well, Hebrews says that Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is our great high priest. And in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, that he is our great, as our great high priest, he is holy. Innocent, this is Hebrews 7, 26, we didn't read it, but it says there, he is holy, innocent as our high priest, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So that's to show you the holiness, the purity of our great high priest. Here's here's what he accomplishes. Our infinitely pure and holy great high priest becomes the offering for sin. Our innocent high priest has himself become, the word, using the words here in Hebrews chapter 2, the propitiation, the sin payment, the, exp- the, 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 the offering that does away with our guilt. Hebrews 2.17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, you think, well, this day and age, we don't have categories for sin. Oh, yes, we do. We just have rejected God's category for what sin is, but we have other categories that we can... That we, we really believe that are sin. I, 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 even, I hate to give examples because it just sounds, without giving context, because it sounds like you're throwing rocks. But you just think about this what kind of things can you do at work today or at school today that, that bring punishment? In other words, an action or a word that can bring punishment that's sin. So we we still have categories for sin. We've just shifted it away. We all need, listen, brothers and sisters, we all need to be cleansed. We all know the need for forgiveness. We know that need to have our sin washed away. We may have changed the categories. We may have changed the definitions, but we still believe that sin exists. Hebrews 9.26 says, But as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It sounds like another opposite. The priest is the victim. The priest is the offering. <laughs> Praise God. We no longer have to stand under condemnation and shame. We can have a new beginning where guilt has been washed away because Jesus willingly offers himself as the innocent victim for our sin. And even on top of that, there's more. because it's, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 says this, For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. We have one to help us when we are tempted. Jesus knows what it's like. We do not suffer alone, and we can fly to Him and cling to Him to receive grace and mercy. In our time of need. Oh, such good news. But finally, the thing that just amazes me in this, and perhaps it's something that we particularly need right now in this moment Jesus has defeated death. Jesus, the author of life, has defeated death and has freed us from, the Bible says here in Hebrews chapter 2, from the slavery to the fear of death. Death in its attempt to swallow up Jesus burst open because it could not contain the God of life. Death in its attempt to swallow up Jesus burst open because it could not contain the God of life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death and bestowing life on those in the tomb. Death and the devil's eyes were too big for their stomachs. Remember how St. John Chrysostom talks about it in the Easter sermon. If you've been to any Easter vigil here at Christ Church, you've heard these words. He who was held prisoner by death has annihilated it. By descending into death, Jesus made death captive. He angered it when it tasted of his flesh. Death received a body and it met God face to face. And Jesus burst it open. You know, right now, the world is relentlessly trying to re-enslave us to the fear of death. We hear death talk all day long. The drumbeat of fear surrounding the pandemic has caused many Christians to willingly place themselves under slavery to the fear of death again. Now, please hear me. It's not that Christians think we can't die from the pandemic. Many of us have. It's just that we don't think that death is the worst thing that can happen to us. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to us. So brothers and sisters, do not let yourself be enslaved again to the fear of death so that death dominates your attitudes and actions in this life. This has been been Saint Reading Sunday, hasn't it? It's kind of like old dead Christian dudes being read relentlessly. Well, here's another one. Way back in the 4th century, St. Athanasius wrote this. Listen to what he says, and we'll close with this. All the disciples of Christ despise death. They take the offensive against it, and instead of fearing it, by the sign of the cross and by faith in Christ, trample on it as on something dead. Now that the Savior has raised His body, death is no longer terrible. But all those who believe in Christ treaded underfoot as nothing, and prefer to die rather than deny their faith in Christ, knowing full well that when they die, they do not perish but live indeed and become incorruptible through the resurrection. Death has become like a tyrant who has been completely conquered by by the legitimate monarch. Bound hand and foot, the passers-by sneer at him, hitting him and abusing him no longer afraid of his cruelty and rage because of the king who has conquered him. So has death been conquered and branded for what it is by the Savior on the cross. It is bound hand and foot. All who are in Christ trample it as they pass by and as witnesses to him derided, scoffing and saying, O death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Thanks be to God. Opposites brought together. The mystery of our salvation revealed. And it should lead us to great praise and doxology. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.